Uh, welcome to the podcast for the Biblical Theology Course Seminar. If you would like to download, if you're listening to this um, uh, apart from coming to, on Wednesday night and would like to download the handout, you can do that. Just look in the show notes and you'll see a link to download the handout for tonight. And so let's begin by praying together. Father God, thank you so much for this evening and for the little sneak preview at our meal together tonight here at Family Night at Grace of ham and potatoes and green beans and a good muffin. And uh, God, we're just grateful for the way that you take care of us and um, for all those that work so hard to serve us tonight to give us a good meal. And we just ask now that you'd bless our time together in your word and exploring uh, this theme through the storyline of uh, the story that you are telling. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, right in the beginning, are there any questions? I never give a chance for questions right up front. Any questions that you had from last week? or Then you don't have questions from last week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, what is biblical theology? It is the other one. What is biblical theology? It is a discipline that helps us experience the Bible as one story. It is one story. A unified story that leads to Jesus. So we're looking at, again, we're, we're continuing to go through the same whole story of the Bible and explore different layers of that story, which we're going to do again tonight. And tonight's theme is idolatry. Idolatry. And I'm depending uh, quite a bit on, on two really great books uh, on this theme. So I think you all probably know Timothy Keller. And he has an excellent uh, little book. He's got a number of books about this size. Um, and this one is called Counterfeit Gods, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and The Only Hope That Matters. This is a really, really good book. And uh, so this, this is more, uh, I would say, like at a popular level, you know. Uh, and if you want to dig in a little bit deeper and read something that's a little bit more academic, we Become What We Worship, A Biblical Theology of Idolatry by G.K. Beale. And uh, Beale is just, he has forgotten a thousand times more than I've ever learned. Uh, so that is a really, really good book as well. And you're going to hear from them a few times in addition to a bit from me um, tonight. So, introduction. Idolatry strikes the modern mind as odd or maybe even downright incomprehensible. We tend to associate in our modern age idolatry with ancient religions and cults, stories and mythologies. But the realities of idolatry are not far removed from our culture. Tim Keller notes this, our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from these ancient ones. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its priesthoods, its totems and rituals. Each one has its shrines, whether those shrines are office towers, spas, gyms, studios, or stadiums, 
where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. What are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement, but these same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and in our society? We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. A concern that I would add has been put into hyperdrive by social media. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. But there are no gods who represent these things. There is only the one true God. Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, he alone is the true God to be given praise and worship by humanity. And the issue is humanity doesn't worship him completely. And the storyline of the Bible has a lot to say about the worship of God and of misdirected worship, otherwise known as idolatry. I had a pastor who discipled me and he would frequently say, um, it's really important when studying the Bible or studying theology that we clearly define our terms, right? Because words mean things. And if, if we don't understand our terms, if we're not all operating off of the same lexicon, if you will, then we have really bad expectations and we're not able to understand each other and make forward progress. Confusion reigns. So it's really important for us to understand exactly what idolatry is and be very clear about what we mean by idolatry. I haven't seen a better definition than Keller has written on this, so I'm going to let him take the floor once more here, and I'm going to give you a couple paragraphs uh, from Pastor Keller. He asked the question, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And therefore, it is a counterfeit God. Okay, so that's the idea of his book. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel like living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children career or making money, achievement or critical acclaim, saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in the Christian ministry can be your idol. Ouch. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning or I'll be happy or I'll feel significant and secure. Are you recognizing any potential idols in your life? 
There are personal idols, such as romantic love and family, or access to particular social circles. There are cultural idols, such as military power, technological progress, economic prosperity. Do you see those cultural idols operating in our nation today? There are intellectual idols. We call them ideologies. Like all our social problems could be rooted in poor education and socialization. So if we just had great education, if we had better social programs, everything would be better, right? Or the belief in the essential goodness of humanity. Or the ideology of various political commitments and parties. There are literally idols everywhere. Or as Greg Beale puts it, idolatry is, quote, to commit ourselves to some part of the creation more than to the creator. So what I want to do tonight is look at the storyline of idolatry in the scriptures and see what that storyline has to say about this perennial human problem. And then we'll unpack a little bit at the end what that means for us. So first, Isaiah's judgment. So take your Bible and turn with me to Isaiah and then go to Isaiah chapter 6. Now, this isn't Normally, right, we go to the beginning of the story, and I'm not going to the very beginning of the story. I'm plopping us a little bit in the middle, depending on how you look at it, <laughs> the breakout of the storyline. So Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw Yahweh seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of heaven's armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Because my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of Yahweh asking, who will I send and who will go for us? I said, here I am, send me. And he replied, go, say to these people, who are the people? Israel. Israel. Keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the mind of these people dull Deafen their ears, blind their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. Then I said, until when, Yahweh? And he replied, until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants. Houses are without people. The land is ruined and desolate. And Yahweh drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Though a tent will remain in the land, it will be burned again like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when felled. The holy seed is the stump. Boy, that's 
one fun calling he had there, isn't it? Isaiah is being commissioned to pronounce judgment to and upon Israel. Now, why the judgment? Well, it is because of their idolatry. Idolatry is one of Israel's major sins described in Isaiah chapter 1 through 5. For example, chapter 2, verse 8, flip back there. Their land is full of worthless idols. They worship the work of their hands, what their fingers have made. They're worthless idols of silver and gold, which they made to worship. So that by the time we've made our way to chapter 6, we are confronted with a vision of God's holiness, this sharp contrast to idols, the the anti-God, followed up by Isaiah declared forgiven by God, so that Isaiah is now prepared for a commission to deafen and blind Israel to God's word, which leads to the devastating effects of God's judgment. And we may be left wondering why God would have Isaiah do this. Why have him proclaim a message that will harden their hearts? But the key to understanding this is to note where we are in the biblical storyline, right? So Israel has sinned and sinned and sinned and sinned. And so finally God is pronouncing a verdict, a verdict of guilty on the nation. We know that God is perfectly holy. And now he is judging Israel for their sin of idolatry. To which you might say, if you look in chapter 6, well, idolatry isn't, specifically mentioned, which is true, not explicitly, but the concept is there. If you remember our definition of an idol from Keller, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. So let's look at the language used in this passage. Isaiah is to preach to the people that they are to keep on hearing, but not to understand. They are to keep on seeing, but not perceive. We don't readily connect that kind of language to idol worship, but Israel would have. They would know exactly what God through Isaiah was getting at. For being blind and deaf refer to idol worship throughout the story of the scriptures. You can look in Isaiah chapter 42. They will be turned back and utterly ashamed, those who trust in an idol, and say to a cast image, you are our gods. God's response, listen, you deaf. Look, you blind, so that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf like my messenger I am sending? Who is blind like my dedicated one, or blind like the servant of the Lord? Though seeing many things, you pay no attention. Though his ears are open, he does not listen. Or Isaiah 43, bring out the people who are blind, yet they have eyes, and are deaf, even though they have ears. You are my witnesses, this is the Lord's declaration, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. No God was formed before me, and there will be none after me. Or Isaiah 44, do not be startled or afraid. Have I not told you and declared it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God but me? There is no other rock. I do not know any. You guys should turn to this. It's a long passage. Isaiah 44, verse eight. I'm in verse nine now. All who make idols are nothing and what they treasure benefits no one. Their witnesses do not see or know anything, so they will be put to shame. Who makes a god or casts a metal image that benefits no one? Look, all its worshipers will be put to shame, and the craftsmen are humans. They all will assemble and stand. They all will be startled and put to shame. The iron worker labors over the coals. 
shapes the idol with hammers, works it with his strong arm. Also, he grows hungry and his strength fails. He doesn't drink water and is faint. The woodworker stretches out a measuring line. He outlines it with a stylus. He shapes it with chisels and outlines it with a compass. He makes it according to a human form, like a beautiful person, to dwell in a temple. He cuts down cedars for his use, or he takes a cypress or an oak. He lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a laurel, and the rain makes it grow. A person can use it for fuel. He takes some of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire, and he bakes bread. He even makes it into a god and worships it. He makes an idol from it and bows down to it. He burns half of it in a fire and roasts meat on that half. He eats the roast and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the blaze. And he makes a god or his idol with the rest of it. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it, Save me, for you are my god. Such people do not comprehend and cannot understand. For he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, their minds so they cannot understand. No one comes to his senses. No one has the perception or insight to say, I burned half of it in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Should I make something detestable with the rest of it? Should I bow down to a block of wood? Isaiah is making clear a crucial point in the story. Idol worshipers do not have spiritual eyes, even though they have physical eyes. Even though they have physical ears, they do not spiritually hear. Why is this the case? What's going on? Psalm 115. Look at Psalm 115. Their idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throats. And those who make them are just like them, as are all who trust in them. You see, a key principle in the story that is developing in the scriptures is that if we worship idols, we will become like the idols and their likeness will ruin us. This is what Isaiah is to pronounce to and upon Israel. Saying, so my people, so you like to worship idols instead of the one true God. Fine. Fine. Your judgment is that I will make you as spiritually inanimate and spiritually insensitive and lifeless as the idols you worship. You will have eyes, but not see. You will have ears, but not hear. And if you ponder that for a few moments, you will find it to be a devastating pronouncement upon his people. A pronouncement that should become a warning to all of humanity. It happens to them, it could happen to you. Greg Beale says, so in Isaiah 6, 9, through Isaiah, God commands the idolatrous people to become like the idols they have refused to stop loving. And in Isaiah 6, 10, he commands Isaiah to make the people like their idols through his prophetic preaching. Why would be so difficult? My... my 
call is to preach to you in such a way that God will harden your hearts and your eyes and your ears so that you will be utterly ruined. Yeah, it makes you, it makes you think of Paul. Like, to some we are a fragrance for life to life and some to, from death to death. This is a paramount example of text of Lex Talionis in the Old Testament, an eye for an eye. People are punished by means of their own sin. But this isn't the beginning of the story, right? We've kind of plopped right in the middle. So I want to roll back the film a little bit to see how we got to Isaiah, which means going to the first major idol-worshiping event in the life of Israel. Can anyone tell me what that was? The golden calf. It just hopped right out of the fire. I, I have no idea, Moses. You just have to be like Moses. Be like, you got to be kidding me, bruh. Bruh. Really? The judgment of God on Israel by the prophet Isaiah didn't come out of the blue. There was decades of idolatry by the people and their leaders that led to it. In fact, as, we, as you all just answered early on in the history of God's people, idolatry, sadly, entered in very quickly. Most, if not all of you, are very familiar with this story. Israel's fresh out of their bondage in Egypt. Chapters 1 through 14 of Exodus tell of this great salvation event. And then in chapters 19 and 20, God lays out for Israel what it means for them to be his people. They had to reflect to the world his glory and who he is. And to make clear what this will look like in the day-to-day, he gives them laws by which to live their lives. Of course, we know the first two of these laws. And what are the first laws called? What do we know them as? The Ten Commandments, or the Ten, literally in the Bible. And what are the first? What are the very first two? Don't have other gods besides yeah, me. And that's yes, correct. And what's the second Make commandment? Make for yourself, yeah. whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above, or on the <laughs> earth below, or in the waters under the earth. There you go. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's sins to the third, <laughs> fourth generations of those who hate me showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. So these reflect that God alone is the God to be worshipped, which probably by context is because he is the God who saved them. And then he supplements, so that's the first commandment, then he supplements it in the second commandment, prohibiting the creation of images or statues or any other such thing. But it doesn't take long before they engage in the very thing that God has prohibited. If you wanted to be charitable to the Israelites, maybe you could even read the account of their idolatry right in the beginning from the angle that maybe they thought they were honestly worshiping Yahweh and just trying to create an image that would represent who he was, worshiping him the way that they saw him, But it doesn't matter. They created an idol or image out of their liking and their desires. And what happened? Israel came to be described. So here's the principle. Right at the very beginning, they came to be described by what they worshipped. 
God calls them in Exodus 32, 9, 33, 3, 34, 9, Deuteronomy 9, 6, 13, 10, 16, and 31, 27, a stiff-necked people, which is an interesting phrase, right? But it has a very ironic meaning and is the perfect portrayal of exactly what we've been talking about in relationship to idolatry up to this point, that we become like what we worship. You see, stiff-necked was a phrase to describe a stubborn old cow that refuses to go in the right direction. It is stiff-necked. You're trying to lead it, and it's, it's like that horse story I gave you a while ago where I'm trying to pull on it, and it was like back, but it was going to go where it wanted to go. So when God sees his people rejecting the very first two of his commandments, when he sees them doing so by creating the image of a golden calf, he points out the irony. You are a stiff-necked people. You're just like a rebellious group of cattle that refuses to go in the right direction. Beal notes, the first generation Israelites did not literally become petrified golden calves, like the golden calf they worshipped, but they are depicted as acting out acting like out-of-control and headstrong calves, apparently because they are being mocked as having become identified with the spiritually rebellious image of the calf that they had worshipped. What they had revered, they had come to resemble, and that resemblance was destroying them. So we started our story with a prophet of later Israel who was pronouncing judgment on the people for their idolatry, Isaiah. He says, they have ears but don't hear, eyes but don't see. They've become like the idols they worshipped. And then we go back to this defining event in the first generation of Israel in the Exodus, and we see that's where the pattern began. The people revered a calf of gold, and God declares them a stiff-necked people. Unfortunately, as we've seen in other layers of this story, as we've been making it through, right, the story doesn't ever seem to get better, no matter what layer we're looking at. It only seems to get worse as the story goes on, and this will not be an exception. Idolatry will not be an exception. For idolatry will be, as many of you know, a major struggle for the nation as they move into the land, as they deal with surrounding nations, right? Their, their later kings would be judged on how they worshiped God. Did the nation reflect God and his glory rightly by worshiping, worshiping him in the way that he, he ordains, free of creaturely images? No, will not. Psalm 106, at Horeb they made a calf and worshiped the cast metal image. They exchanged their glory for the image of a grass-eating ox. 2 Kings 17, they would not listen. Instead, they became obstinate. Would you ever called obstinate by your mom or dad when you were growing up? What's another, what's another word for obstinate? Stubborn. Stubborn. I always used to... Remember my mom, stiff neck, yeah. My mom always used to say, so I had, apparently we've got a little bit of bohemian in our bloodline and they're known uh, for being like a, a stubborn people. And so she would look at us and go, oh, you, you stinking bohunks, which was a derogatory term for bohemians because they were so stubborn. Or my grandpa would say, you've got far more skull right here than you do anywhere else on your head. Right there, just thick. <laughs> they would not listen. They became obstinate like their ancestors who did not believe Yahweh their God. 
They rejected his statutes and his covenant he had made with their ancestors and the warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Following the surrounding nations, the Lord had commanded them not to imitate. Hosea 4, 7, the more they multiplied, the more they sinned against me. And so I will change their honor into disgrace. Jeremiah 2, this is what Yahweh says. What fault did your ancestors find in me? That they went so far from me. Isn't that an interesting way for God to talk relationally with his people? Like, that's, that's what we think, right? When there's, when there's, if someone kind of leaves you, you're like, well, well, what, did I, what did I do? The Banshees of Inishirin that just Colin Farrell just won best actor for. That's the whole thing. His, his friend, they're sitting down together at a bar and his friend says, I, I don't want to be your friend anymore. I, I, I just, I've decided I don't like you anymore. And that's what God is saying. What, what, what fault are you finding in me that you go so far from me and follow worthless idols becoming worthless yourself? Has a nation ever exchanged its gods? But they were not gods. Yet my people, in other words, I'm looking around at all these nations, they're actually faithful to their gods. And yet my people have exchanged their glory, which is me, capital G glory, they've exchanged their glory, I am their glory, for useless idols. Be appalled at this, heavens. Be shocked and utterly desolated. This is Yahweh's declaration. When Israel turned to worship idols, they would become stubborn, empty, vain and lifeless just like those very idols and it was their undoing but before we go forward it's going to keep yanking you back and forth let's go all the way to the beginning where we see in genesis 1 and 2 we talked about this a little already right um in the role of the church to bear the image of god in the in the storyline of the people of god we are created to reflect and we're not going to go into a deep dive here because we've seen this again and again in the last weeks. But I want to spend just a little time in the creation story. We, we've learned that humanity has been made in the image of God to reflect the glory and the goodness of who he is as God. God created us in his likeness to rule as his vice regent over his creation and to multiply, to spread the divine image across the earth. We've learned that we were created to reflect his character, his attributes, and his glory, which means our humanity is wrapped up in who God is. So more precisely, that to be truly human is to worship and revere God, and to be truly human is to reflect his glory and his image. In other words, reflecting and revering are integrally connected. We cannot reflect if we're not revering. And we want to reflect the right thing, so we have to revere the right thing, the right person. Again, Greg Beal. All humans have been created to be reflecting beings and they will reflect whatever they are ultimately committed to, whether the true God or some other object of the created order. It strikes me that this is very apparent, is it not? <laughs> when you see people, is it not true that we become what we worship? Yeah. 
when we see people that become so disfigured by the things that they worship. Ugly representations. And we could all think of all kinds of examples of this. Whether it's power. Think of the perversion and the distorted characters that represent some of the highest levels of leadership in our country and the ugly displays they are of power absolutely corrupting and disfiguring them. Counterfeit gods are so unlike our good God because they are never satisfied. They are never satisfied and it's never enough. And they will take and take and take until they kill you. Think of people given over to the God of sex or the God of all kinds of the, the perversions of sexuality. And what we can see with our eyes is how defaced they become in giving themselves to that. Like, like how tragic... And how tragic it is, how blinded by Satan. This is 2 Corinthians 4, 4. That, you know, in 3.18, we, we behold God and we are transformed from one degree of glory into the next to look like him. Versus 2 Corinthians 4, 4, they're blinded by this Satan and unbeliever so that we have leaders and parents helping children to disfigure their bodies in the name of the God of transgenderism. Cut off your breasts. Cut off your genitals. Because this is, this is the God that you bow down and worship to and by which you have identified with. And you're becoming this horrible, perverted thing that you worship. And it was never enough. Satan always tries to pervert the image of God. Yeah. And it never satisfies. Mm-hmm. It never satisfies. And there's increasingly now, as we get into, in particular, all of these issues of human sexuality, now that we're into it long enough, you start to hear these testimonies of people who, who I thought this would take care of the underlying depression and anxiety and pain and grief and longing and I got everything I wanted and the depression and anxiety and pain and grief and longing is still there. Mm-hmm. Instead of obeying the command of God in Genesis 1:27 to bring God's glory to the end of the earth, Adam chose to expand his own glory. He engaged essentially in self-worship. Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden was ultimately tied to idolatry because Adam became committed to something other than God. When Adam stopped being committed to God and reflecting his image, he revered something else in place of God and resembled his new object of worship. Thus, at the heart of Adam's sin was turning from God and replacing reverence for God with a new object of reverence to which Adam had become conformed. Because he became an idolater, Adam was unable to fulfill his divine mission and mandate to rule and subdue creation. As an image bearer, Adam was to reflect the character of God, which included mirroring the divine glory. Just as Adam's son was in Adam's likeness and image, Genesis 5, 1-3, and was to resemble his human father in appearance and character, so Adam was a son of God who was to reflect his father's image. 
This means that the command for Adam to subdue, rule, and fill the earth includes uppermost that he is a king filling the earth, not merely with progeny, but image-bearing progeny who will reflect God's glory. So as we move further back in the story to the very beginning, we find rooted there this idea that what you revere, you reflect, and it will lead to your ruin or restoration. And Adam was ruined by his worship. Israel is ruined by their worship. So now let's, let me yank you back forward again to bridge the gap from that up into the time of Jesus. We recognize at the very beginning of our time this evening that most people today do not bow down to physical idols and worship. That's what Keller said. So it is that maybe idolatry might be a little trickier to see. But as we bridge the gap from Old Testament to New Testament, we see the progression that leads up to our experience today. Because in the first century, there certainly is still idol worship, but it takes on a new flavor. I mean, it takes on many flavors, but let's point out one. In each of the Gospels, Matthew 13, 13 to 15, Mark 4 to 12, these texts are in your handout, Luke 8, 10, John 12, 39 to 40, Jesus quotes Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. If you want to see what 6, 9, and 10 was, you can look at page one of your handout. In doing so, Jesus, like Isaiah, is pronouncing a judgment on the Israel of his time. Now, the Israel in Jesus' time wasn't still bowing down to calves made of gold, right? That wasn't happening. But they were bowing down to their traditions. It was a part of how their worship had become skewed. So the pattern is being repeated. But what's at stake in the first century is so much greater, for in Jesus' time, the Israelites were rejecting the word of God in the flesh. Just as Israel before was becoming like what they worshipped, stubborn and spiritually lifeless, having eyes and not seeing and ears but not hearing, the same was happening in Jesus' day. They were becoming as spiritually dead as their man-made traditions and rituals. Their tradition was but whitewashed. Do you remember the words of Jesus? Matthew 23 Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They had become what they worshipped to their ruin. They committed the ultimate act of false worship to the false god of man-made traditions, which ended in them murdering the God-man, Jesus. In revering their idols, they actually killed the image of the invisible God. Irony. But it wasn't all for ruin. Remember, we become what we worship for ruin or restoration. In John 12, Jesus puts forward himself as light, reflecting the light of the Father. And he holds out to us the great hope of restoration for those who would believe in him. Therefore, those who believe in him will reflect him, not for ruin, but restoration as revering reflectors of his light. Now we see this in Paul, who is going to keep the storyline moving forward. Because idolatry isn't just an issue for Israel, right? All humanity is to reflect and worship God. We have seen this. We've been in Romans just a little bit. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, 
powerfully demonstrates that idolatry leads to a malfunction of one's relationship to God, which always leads to a malfunction of one's relationships with other humans, which ends up in God's just sentence of judgment. Paul doesn't leave the Romans with just a picture of how wrong worship harms us, but in his well-known teaching in Romans 12, 1 to 2, he presents the antithesis to Romans 1, namely the contours of true worship. So look at the chart in your handout. Romans 1, 18 to 32 results in wrath, because refusing to glorify or thank God, a dishonoring of the body, misunderstood idolatrous service of worship, a reprobate mind and rejecting the righteousness of God, whereas Romans 12, 1 to 2, he portrays a picture of mercy, of sacrificing to God, of offering our bodies, of a reasonable service of worship, which results in a renewed mind and approving the will of God. And in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul further taps into the Old Testament to rightly warn the Corinthians against idolatry and further, amazingly, that the whole reason that we must know the story of how this has happened before. The reason the story is there is as a sobering reminder for us not to walk down the same path. I love this about Paul. In in case, you know, you've been bored for the last 50 minutes. (laughs) Do not become idolaters as some of them were. Chapter 10, verse 7. Verse 9. Let us not test Messiah as some of them did. Verse 11, these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. So whoever he thinks, whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. Listen, no temptation has come upon you except what is common to all humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. Which is a really great, but isn't that an important thing to remember? Yeah. Well, you just don't understand, Pastor. I just, I can't stop myself. <laughs> yeah, you can. Because God will provide a way out so that you can bear the temptation. So then, my dear friends, Flee from idolatry. Of course, we know the story ends in Revelation, where we see very clearly that you resemble what you revere. In Revelation 13, those who worship idols are referred to while using a few different phrases. So if you look at chapter 8, verse 13, 13, 8, and verse 14, or chapter 14, verses 6 through 9, chapter 17, verses 2 and 8, There's all these phrases that refer to those who worship idols as those who dwell on the earth or those who are living on the earth. And according to Beale, as he like unwraps and kind of unfolds these connections, he says that these earth dwellers in Revelation, they cannot look beyond this earth for their security. That's the whole point of seeing that over and over again. And you kind of see described what they're kind of relying on. They cannot look beyond this earth for their security, which means that they trust in some part of the creation instead of the creator for their ultimate welfare. Thus, people are called earth dwellers because this expresses the object of their trust and perhaps of their very being, right? So you become like what you worship. Can you think of a religion 
today that represents this reality? Not the one I'm thinking of. Let's see if you can read my mind. <laughs> can you think of a religion that resembles someone called earth dwellers who trust in the earth for their security, which means that they're trusting in some part of the creation? They're called earth dwellers because it expresses the object of their trust and perhaps of their very being. The God of climate. The religion of climate change. That we must do. We must do everything we can. We must sacrifice all that we have to bow down and worship who? We even have a name for her. Mother Earth. In the absence of the one true and living God, that the heart will always find a God. Always. And so we don't want to be capitalists. We don't want to be patriots. We don't want to love the nation. We don't want... So we will do everything we can. And so we've created this God. And I won't spend any more time on that, but, but think about that for a minute and think about how you hear the, the kind of the whole climate change mantras and the high priests and priestesses of climate change. And it, it's really fascinating. I, I think that part of what, that's the first thing I thought of when I started to listen to this and, and hadn't seen kind of this, these dwellers on the earth before until Beale was pointing it out to me. And I think that's what we're seeing. That's what he's saying. They became earthy and came to be known as earth dwellers, right? Humanity is merely a cancer on this earth. <laughs> right, right, right. I was just listening this morning to um, an interview between Jordan Peterson and, and uh, yeah. this uh, Russian guy who I can't pronounce his name, but <laughs> it, had, it had many, many, uh, many vowels in it. Um, <laughs> and uh, they were talking about who was the guy in the 70s that, you know, said that the earth is going to end, we're going to run out of resources and... No, it wasn't Orwell. It was like Roger Ehrlich or Emmerich or something like that. I, uh, Paul. Yes. And, and he, was, he was just like, we're going to run out of all of the main resources that we need, and there's going to be like 4 billion people on the planet, and now here we are, and this is going to be by the year 2000, and now in 2023, we have 8 billion people on the planet, and we have more of the main resources that we've ever had in the history, in the known history of the world. But yet we're. But yet, what are we doing? We're coming back to the Earth's going to be overpopulated, and we're going to yeah. Yep we we hate people. So how, where do we go from where do we go from there? Where, where do Earth dwellers go from being Earth dwellers? How, how do they change? As we have gone through this story, one thing is looming over the overarching story. If we resemble what we revere for ruin, how do we reverse that? 
How can people who have ears but don't hear and eyes but don't see become the image reflectors that they were meant to be? How, how will that happen? Well, to begin with, we need to return to Isaiah 6. Go back to Isaiah 6, and you see Isaiah what? What happens to Isaiah? I, I am a man who's ruined. Yeah. I have unclean lips. I dwell amongst people unclean lips. Until what? He knows exactly where he's at God. Until he's cleansed by God and made holy and a reflector of his glory. Chapters later, though the judgment on Israel is coming, there are glimpses of this reversal. You can see it in Isaiah 29, verses 9 and following. Stop, so here, here's the judgment. Stop and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with beer. For the Lord has poured it. Yet yeah, there's beer in the Bible. Can you believe it? For the Lord has poured on you an overwhelming urge to sleep. He has shut your eyes through the prophets. He has covered your heads through the seers. For you, the entire vision will be like the words of a sealed document. Okay, it's, it's going to be closed. If it is given to one who can read and he is asked to read it, he will say, I can't read it because it's sealed. And if the document is given to one who cannot read and he is asked to read it, he will say, I can't read. Yahweh said, these people approach me with their speeches to honor me with lip service, yet their hearts are far from me and human rules direct their worship of me. Therefore, I will again confound these people with wonder after wonder. The wisdom of their wise will vanish. The perception of their perceptive will be hidden. Woe to those who go to great lengths to hide their plans from Yahweh. They do their works in the dark and say, who sees us? Who knows us? You have turned things around as if the potter were the same as the clay. In other words, that you have some power over yourself. How can what is made say about its maker, he didn't make me? How can what is formed say about the one who formed it, he doesn't understand what he's doing? And yet, verse 18, on that day, the deaf will hear the words of a document. And out of a deep darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Look at Isaiah 32. Indeed, a king will reign righteously and rulers will rule justly. Each will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the rain, like flowing streams in a dry land and the shade of a massacred rock in an arid land. And the eyes of those who, will, who see will not be closed and the ears of those who hear will listen. The reckless mind will gain knowledge and the stammering tongue will speak clearly and fluently. And then Isaiah 52, he will sprinkle many nations. King will shut their mouth because of him for they will see what had not been told them and they will understand what they had not heard. So God clearly will bring out from some of the people of Israel and will reverse their idolatry. We see this as well in the Gospel of Matthew where we were looking at and listening to Jesus right after Jesus' pronouncement of judgment on the blindness and deafness of Israel in his day, he gives hope to some. For God was in the coming of his son, opening eyes and ears. Matthew 13, blessed are your eyes because they do see and your ears because they do hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see the things that you see but didn't see them and to hear the things that you hear but didn't hear them so that we see that God is the only giver of spiritual sight Amen. and spiritual hearing. God is the one who made man in his image. He is the potter and we are the clay. He is the only one who can re-image idolaters who have become what they worshiped. He's the only one who can reshape 
like k- kind of you think of like a, a piece of pottery that like originally have you ever seen a potter throwing a bowl right like they're molding and shaping it's soft and malleable and then you put it in a kiln and it gets hard and like god's the only one that is able to reverse that entire like what's your problem that's right and, <laughs> he's a chiropractor it, <laughs> <laughs> wow eric Dang, bro, that was good. <laughs> a chiropractor for the stiff neck. I like it. I was just there yesterday. <laughs> he is the potter and we are the clay. He's the only one who can re-image idolaters. We see that even while declaring judgment, Isaiah and Ezekiel both spoke of this future reversal. One more time from Greg Beal. It is in Messiah that people formerly conformed to the world's image, right? That's Romans 1, 18 to 32. Begin to be transformed into God's image. Then go to Romans 8, chapter 12, 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And this process of transformation into the divine image will be completed at the end of history when Christians will be resurrected and fully reflect God's image in Messiah, read 1 Corinthians 15. They will be resurrected by the spirit imparting power of the risen Messiah. Since it was the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, so the spirit of Messiah will raise Christians from the dead at the end of the age and the spirit's work in people will enable them to be restored and perfectly revere Yahweh and perfectly resemble his image so that God will be wonderfully glorified in and through us. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. <laughs> but it says we have to go through it first. We do. Yeah. And the beauty of this is that it's, it's present and future, right? So again, that's 2 Corinthians 3.18. We, we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of our King Jesus and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. And this is from the Lord who is the Spirit. And that's unlike those who, in their case, the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the good news of the glory of the Messiah, who is the image of God, so that they cannot be transformed into seeing him, but are made like all the other objects that they're revering and worshiping. To which you might say at the end here, so what? So what? What What good has the last hour of my life been listening to this? Well, our main idea has been that you become what you worship either for ruin or destruction or excuse me, or restoration. We were made to be reflecting beings and we long to live that out. We long to live out reflecting. Think, think of how in most cases, not all, but in most cases, how kids want to be like their parents. Have you seen this? They, they, they want to be like mom or dad. Or think about people who, what do, they, what do they want to do with celebrities? Why do we have celebrities? They're idols. We have a show called American Idol. Yeah. <laughs> 
right? We, we tra- where celebrities are judging, essentially, are you getting more like us with your little performance that you just did up there? The reality is that people will either reflect God and aspects of his character or they will reflect something else in this world. And we as Christians have the message that turns idolaters into worshipers of God. We ourselves were once dead and spiritually lifeless. And by the good news of Jesus Messiah, God gave us eyes and ears and hearts ready to worship him. But there's, there's danger for us because there's no neutrality in our worship of God. You either revere him or you don't. You either reflect him and his glory or you exchange it for something that he has created. And the question you need to ask is who or what are you worshiping? Who or what are you worshiping? So... As you go tonight, I put some things to maybe reflect on this week as you consider what it means to try and help people grow one step closer to Jesus. One, think about what it means that you need to preach the good news to idolaters. So what does it look like to translate the good news to like looking around at people and seeing this reality of idolatry in the world and the message that you have for them? Consider your life and who or what you Revere and are thus reflecting. What are your idols? We all have them, don't we? We have little, little gods that we have allowed in. It's just so interesting how judgmental we can be of the failures of others, right? Like when, you, when I, I'm just reading, you, you know, I'm in the Old Testament in my Bible reading plan right now. You see all these little examples that kind of stick out at you, like. You know, well, yeah, and then they had little household gods that they shoved under the saddle or they put in the tent. You're just like, whoa, wait, whoa, whoa. <laughs> wait a second, aren't you like the people of God or you're worshiping Yahweh? Know, but you got like some little idol and, or then you got the guy that, you know, I'm going to hire this priest and he's going to be like my little priest in my house and like just all those weird, right? Remember that passage that we read earlier, beware lest you fall. Like, I mean, this is, these things are written for our instruction and we're, we're not any better than them. And I think we all have little idols. It's amazing. I mean, if, if idolatry is as, if the bar is as low as if something is taken from you and you're not happy because that thing was taken, oh my gosh, how many of us are like toddlers and have stuff that gets taken from us and we throw tantrums? <laughs> this golfing trip that you had and all of a sudden you don't get to go on it and like your whole dis... Yeah, when that doesn't... What happens when your internet goes from 100 megabits per second to 2 megabits per second? And you're like, oh my word! I had to wait two minutes for this page to load. When the, when the Netflix it starts to do that whole choppy thing and like looks all kind of fuzzy, I paid for 4K! Think about helping people grow one step closer to Jesus in likeness and proximity means imitating one another as we imitate Jesus. There's no Paul said, follow me, imitate me. So there is a right kind of imitation and he immediately redirects and says, as I imitate Messiah. 
And part of what we want to do at Grace is grow one step closer to Jesus. And I don't say this very often, but I think of that in two ways, in both proximity and likeness. I'm trying to grow. I'm trying to do that second Corinthians 3.18 thing where I look more like him. And the closer I get to him, the more I'm going to look like him. So it's proximity and likeness. And this is the communal aspect of this, right? Like we have to point out for each other our idols. And we, and we have to provide examples for each other. If we're image bearers and reflectors, if you're a good example for me, Paul, of what Jesus looks like, now I have in flesh before me, oh, I, I love how Paul is this way in that area of his life, and I want to be like that. Look at how he loves Cynthia. Oh, I'd like to love Susan that way. And now I just got more like Jesus. And because I'm revering that aspect of a character trait of God being reflected in Paul's life. That's why it's so we can't do this on our own, right? So think about those things. Any questions at the end? Any complaints? Okay, hearing none. <laughs> I was just thinking about, uh, it's kind of like... Uh, when God was telling Isaiah to preach in a way that would make them, you know, blind and deaf, um, you know, he talks about in other parts of like the Old Testament and stuff about how he turns them over to the lust of their heart and all these other things and stuff. Um, but really, it's us that pretty much cones ourselves like the veterinarian cone, where we're we're putting on the all we want to hear and all we want to see is what we want to see. Uh huh. Yeah. Pretty much. God allows that to happen to us, but it's really our doing. Am I wrong about that? Or um, well, that's kind of when I just kind of don't understand that. Yes, yeah, there is a. Certainly, we're responsible for those actions. That I mean, I think of when when you're saying when you're saying that I think about Paul's admonition to not quench the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so I, I think, and I think of his commands. Right, he says it in multiple ways: live by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit. So the Spirit that is, is, is given to me to empower me to do those things that God wants me to do so that I might become, right? He, he just says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, this is from the Lord who is the Spirit. So it's the Spirit that's going to allow me to become more like Him. So it's, it's giving myself to Him. I, I remember a number of years ago, this is one of my, my wife's favorite sermon series when I was doing a series in Galatians. And and I think this is kind of like your cone, your yeah. your veterinarian cone for a dog, right? I, I, I talked about it like, um, because we have, uh, Paul talks about um, the flesh and the spirit, right? Like, so you didn't begin by the flesh, so why would you try and live by the flesh? Why would you do these things of the flesh? And the things that are the flesh are not of the spirit, and the things that are spirit are not of the flesh. And so, you know, we've all seen, we've all, over the years, you see the little, uh, you know, you've seen a little picture of the different angels, right? Like the, the little devil on one shoulder, little angel on the other. And so I kind of, that, that kind of old image made me think of like, um, there's like the, there's like this little flesh monster on, on one shoulder and there's a spirit on the other shoulder. And I have a choice as to who I'm going to give more power and strength in my life by the way that I live my life. And so I, I can choose to nourish and strengthen this flesh monster in a way that allows him a power in my life that's inordinate to the power of the Spirit. So everything that I'm doing that isn't in line with God is feeding his power 
I look at porn, he gets stronger. I, I abuse alcohol, he gets stronger. I abuse drugs, he gets stronger. I'm not loving to other people, he gets stronger. He grows and grows and grows, right? But then there's things that I can do to starve him. He's not ultimately, I'm not going to be delivered from his influence in my life until death or the return of the Messiah in the glorification of my body. But I can make, I can so starve the flesh monster that he's the 60 pound weakling at the beach that every time he rears his little head, I just kick sand in his face. Right? That's what I can do. And the, and the, and the power of the Spirit can be so strong in me by reading the Word, by spending time with God's people. I mean, there, there's all kinds of, by, by so, oh my gosh. Okay. Teeny little parentheses. I was reading today a new six. I've been thinking a bit about prayer in these days um, as I've been entering into Holy Week and feeling my heart not enlivened in the way that I would like in response to the things that we see happening in Holy Week. And in in print, you know, my prayer has been, Father, I don't want these to be just words and stories. I want a real experience of the crucified and risen Christ in my life. I don't want just words and so I've, I've been thinking about that, reading about that. I read that um, only 6%, there's, a, there's Paul Miller, who wrote A Praying Life, has, has a, an international prayer ministry, and they have uh, done surveys of hundreds of thousands of Christians across the world. And in hundreds of thousands of surveys, 6% of Christians at some time in the last month, have prayed with another person. Six percent, which means 84 percent are not taking their little ember of prayer and bringing that with another ember of prayer and another ember and another ember and another ember and experiencing the power of that. And, and I, think, I think that that probably bears true. That seems, I don't think he's lying. I'm guessing he's giving us accurate statistics. And it's amazing how strong we can feel. Your elders spent a little over hour, an hour on Monday morning praying together. I walked away so refreshed from that hour. So pushed into areas that if I had spent that hour by myself in my house with my Bible, good, right? With my Bible, Praying to God, not a bad thing, not an evil thing. Not as good as with six other guys. In in the way, in the the, the areas, I'm still, I'm still thinking about how Seth prayed Matthew 3 on Monday morning. It is still reverberating in my soul. And it just affirmed all over again in me. This is how I will get strong, is through the community of my brothers and sisters. It's why Sunday gatherings, they're not about grace being able to report, here's our average attendance. I could give a rip. It's about being together, you guys. And And being stronger because of it. (laughs) Yes and amen. Yes and amen. So anyway, that was a rant. Um,
and be able to take the opportunities with the people right beside us in conversation where something is shared. I've been shocked how ready people are to just, yeah, let's pray or, right now. Or, no, no shame in that. what if you showed up and I got up on the stage and said, we're just going to pray today. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. See, God can do that. That's a little crazy. Yes. That's a little radical. Yes. Sounds a little radical. I love it. I love it. That's what I thought. I'd probably get an email. Pass me out if you just wanted a Sunday off. <laughs> I'm kidding. I wouldn't get an email like that at Grace. I wouldn't get an email like that at Grace. All right. Um, yeah. So if you need to go, you can, you can go. So like, for example, Uh-huh. And um, after a while, God said, okay, you know what, I'm just going to put you in a uh, delusion. And, like, basically, I forget how it, exactly it's worded, but basically, God gives Pharaoh over completely to Pharaoh's own self. And he and allows Pharaoh to harden his own heart, because God hardened his heart at first. And then God was like, okay, fine. And then Pharaoh started hardening his own heart. I think we can do that in our own lives through our our idols. We we consume ourselves with certain idols, and the Holy Spirit is convicting us. And the more we ignore that conviction, the more God just gives us over to that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, now with non-believers. Yeah, which is which is a bit of which is Romans one. Yeah. Know, and, and so with non-believers, uh, going through this whole study right now. How does that work? If, if 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 we're to evangelize to people, but God's already hardened their heart and closed their eyes and ears, what like, what do we do? Yes, it has free will playing in the back. Yeah. I've been thinking that exact question this whole. Well, I don't. I don't. I categorically don't believe in free will. I don't. I don't think there is. Yeah. Which which I yeah. So refer to the sermons on um, Romans six. Uh, I talked about it there. It's very, it's very clear to me. To you're, you're a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. So I, I don't think... Now, I, I think that there is, there is a will. There, there is... God gives us the capacity of rationality and the ability to make decisions and to make choices. So I'm not saying that there's not a will. I'm saying that it's either... I think Paul's very clear. It's either enslaved to sin or enslaved to righteousness, enslaved to God or enslaved to the Satan, is in the realm of sin or realm of the sun. And so, um, so that, that's how, I, I, don't think there's, there, I don't think there's an absolute freedom of the will. How does, how does rescue come? If you're a slave to sin, is that just the, is that I think that by the, so this is a bit, of, I think this a bit answers uh, both questions. One, I don't, kn- I don't know the secret will of God. I know, so there's, I, I think there's multiple aspects and dimensions to God's will. So I think there's a secret will of God that, um, you know, Paul says how inscrutable are his ways, how they're beyond finding out. And, and there is a decretive will of God. So there's things that he's declared openly and that is, that are clear to us. There are those things that were mysteries at one point that Paul then says, now these things have been revealed to us. They've been uncovered. I mean, that, that's Revela- the book of Revelation is the, the apocalypse. It's the, the uncovering, the unveiling of things so that we can see things. So 
The key, in my belief, in the understanding of the sovereignty of God, his ability to elect those who will come to him and be a part of his family, his very clear teaching, I think in Ephesians 1, for an example, uh, that he predestines those who will be saved. Romans 9, that he has made vessels for wrath and vessels for mercy. In his sovereign decree, I don't know going into Salida who he, who he has hardened and who he has hardened temporarily versus permanently. And I don't, so therefore, I, when people say, well, okay, if you believe, if you believe that God has elected people, then what's the point of my evangelism? My response is, I don't know who he's elected. <laughs> and so my job is to cast the seed as far and as wide and as frequently as I can. And then he's going to sort that out. He's going to be the one who, by the Spirit, now in answer to your question, will regenerate a dead, right? Dead people don't make decisions. No dead. So how you have to think about before God and before the Holy Spirit comes and does a regenerating work to bring you to life. It's not just that you're dead. Picture, what's the, uh, what's the, uh, is it the Marianas Trench? That's the deepest trench in the ocean that we're currently aware of on the earth. Okay, so I want you to picture you in the bottom of that trench. Okay, that's you without God. That's you, Paul, Ephesians 2, without hope in this world. Dead. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. Then God reaches down into the Marianas Trench by the power of his spirit. He enlivens your soul. Right, so he does that through through a uh, declared proclamation of the good news. That's our role. How blessed are the feet of those who bring good news? How blessed that, that proclaim good news. So this call goes out. The Holy Spirit takes that call in the life of a person in the Marianas Trench, enlivens, makes it an effectual call. Right, there's an effect now that's happening to that person. They come to life that allows them to open their eyes and now see Jesus, and this is Calvin's irresistible grace, I think now once these enlivened eyes by the Holy Spirit see the beauty of Christ, he is absolutely irresistible, and I, I choose, being elected and predestined and regenerated, I choose Jesus, and I am now justified, made perfect, so that he could then make me good. And so then he sanctifies me. And one day he will glorify me. So these are the processes of salvation. And I think, it, I think it is the hubris of humanity that wants to grasp, and I don't mean this to offend you, Jen, that wants to, that I see, I'm trying to say this in a way that's charitable. I, I see free will as this, as I've talked with people pastorally in my study and across coffee um, coffee shop tables and restaurant tables, there's this, I made the decision. There's this grasping, and I think it's just rooted in our pride that I somehow had to have a role and that just, and I think that's God's grace in me. I just don't have that problem because I know that 10 times out of 10, if I was left on my own to choose Jesus, I never, ever would. And my life is a series of fundamentally poor choices. I have all kinds of history, even in the last week, to prove that I don't make good choices on my own. I need 
him to grab hold of me. I can't even hold on to Jesus by my own, John chapter 10. I will hold on to all of my sheep. They are in my hand, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. Not even you. So, yes. Mm-hmm. I can apply the same thing I think maybe with free will is understanding and getting a, a concept that that's a good agree. yeah it's a good point because I agree with some of what you said but I disagree with some of what you said based upon my understanding of free will uh, but there's not time to go let me I'm going to just close in prayer and then if you have questions you can come up and talk to me. Father, thanks for this time, and um, Roger's statement is really helpful to me now to just pray. Um, I, am an, I am a fallible person, and so um, wherever things that are helpful and true and in absolute alignment with who you are and what you teach and the truth that only you define, uh, may those things stick with us and sink down deep and change and transform us. And if there's things that I've said that are not in alignment with your truth, oh, Father God, please let those be quickly and easily forgotten. Um, Thank you so much for these folks and for their uh, commitment to be here tonight and their attentiveness and the conversations that we've had and um, use this evening to cause us to see how you are worth giving up everything for and that you are the only one true and living God who is worthy of all of our worship and all of our commitment and praise. And that you're a good God and you will only return good on us for everything that we sacrifice for you. In Jesus' name, amen.